It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, November 19, 2020. On today's episode, the Code St. Luke Public Library's Stephen Tomlinson is here with a full hour on the life and the career of Catherine Hepburn. Here is Stephen Tomlinson. Hi, everyone. It's Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library, and today I will be, with the help of both Wikipedia and the film critic Peter Bradshaw, talking about Catherine Hepburn, the great Hollywood actress and leading lady of some 60 years. Of course, I'll also be recommending several of her movies to watch along the way. Hepburn, of course, appeared in a range of movie genres, from screwball comedy to literary drama, and received four Academy Awards for Best Actress which is still a record, by the way, plus a further eight nominations. She was known for her fierce independence, spirited personality, wit and intelligence, and for pushing the boundaries of on-screen representations of women from the 1930s to the 1990s. So well thought of is she that even today, Hepburn was named by the American Film Institute, the greatest female star of the classic Hollywood cinema era. Hepburn was born in Connecticut in 1907 to wealthy, progressive parents. In fact, much about her early life seems quite naturally to have informed both the woman she became and the roles that she embodied. As a child, she joined her mother on several suffragette demonstrations and was raised to speak her mind and encouraged to think and debate on any topic that she wished, as well as to fight against any barriers that she encountered. The young Hepburn was a tomboy who liked to call herself Jimmy, and she cut her hair short. Her love of movies led to an interest in acting, which she pursued while at Bryn Mawr College, before going to Broadway, where favorable reviews brought her to the attention of Hollywood agent Leland Hayward, who asked her to test for the part of Sidney Fairfield in the then-upcoming RKO film A Bill of Divorcement. Its director, George Cukor, was impressed by what he saw. There was this odd creature, he recalled. She was unlike anybody I'd ever heard. Perhaps thinking of her highly distinctive voice. He particularly liked the manner in which she picked up a glass. I thought she was very talented in that action, he said, and so offered her the role. By the way, she and Cukor would become lifelong friends and colleagues, making a total of ten films together. The 25-year-old Hepburn demanded $1,500 a week, a very large amount for an unknown actress in 1932. But Cukor encouraged the studio to accept her demands, and they signed Hepburn to a temporary contract. The picture was a success, and Hepburn received positive reviews, with Variety declaring, Standout here is the smash impression made by Catherine Hepburn in her first picture assignment. She has a vital something that sets her apart from the picture galaxy. Quote-unquote. On the strength of that performance in A Bill of Divorcement, her very first film, remember, RKO signed her to a long-term contract. It's available to watch for free on YouTube, by the way. But it was really Hepburn's third movie, Morning Glory, in 1933, about the eternal magic of show business that really confirmed her as a star and a major actress in Hollywood. She had seen the script on the desk of producer Pandro S. Berman and convinced that she was born to play the part, insisted that the role be hers. And so it was. She plays Eva Lovelace, a small-town girl who dreams of Broadway but finds New York a tough place to be. On her way to the top, she has romantic adventures with a roguish middle-aged producer played by Adolphe Manjou, and a handsome playwright played by Douglas Fairbanks Jr. It was a role intended for the actress Constance Bennett, but Morning Glory became the very first movie to really highlight many of the characteristics that we associate with Catherine Hepburn's on-screen persona. You know, her forthright, unconventional, independent-minded, even slightly tomboyish manner, which was often regarded as eccentric at the time, but also that highly distinctive patrician, upper-class confidence, the gift for comedy that would never leave her, and the unmistakable Bryn Mawr accent, the oh-so-vibrato quaver that would only grow more pronounced as she grew older. 
So good was Hepburn in Morning Glory that she picked up her first Oscar, but chose not to attend the awards ceremony, as she would not for the duration of her career, but was reportedly thrilled with the win nonetheless. Hepburn made another very notable movie in 1933, and it was in some ways the performance that put the stamp on the persona that would make her a Hollywood legend, playing Joe, easily 10 years younger than her actual age, in George Cukor's lovely adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. Now, her inherent intelligence and talent made this an easier sell than it might have been with other performers. Hepburn's Joe, for example, has a wonderful charm in the so-called family theatricals, where she plays both the hero and the mustachioed villain. And also when she has to sing out, Look at me, world, I'm Joe March, and I'm so happy. The movie was a big hit, one of Hollywood's biggest successes of the year, and Hepburn would go on to win the Best Actress Prize at the Venice Film Festival. Little Women would also become one of Hepburn's personal favorites, and she would always be proud of her performance, later saying, I defy anyone to be as good as Joe as I was. George Stevens is another of the great Hollywood directors with whom Catherine Hepburn worked. His Alice Adams in 1935 is a fervent tale of small-town love based on a novel by Booth Tarkington in which Hepburn plays Alice, a poor young woman with upper-class pretensions, while being not so secretly stricken with a kind of Dickensian shame at her family's lowly social status and lack of money, at least compared with that of their neighbors. But then she falls in love with a young man, played by Frederick Murray, who helps change everything. While not one of my favorites, Alice Adams would also provide Hepburn with her second Oscar nomination. More interesting, at least to my eye, is 1937's Stage Door, in which Hepburn plays a stage-struck heiress attempting to hold her own against much tougher gals played by Ginger Rogers and Lucille Ball. This is a truly zinging, cleverly scripted and fast-talking comedy about women in the theater world. The setting is a ladies' theatrical rooming house, if you can imagine such a thing in 2020, called the Footlights Club, where the mostly unemployed ladies are always gossiping and backbiting against each other. And they are especially suspicious of Hepburn, whom they see as a rich, phony baloney slumming it in the theater world while they need to make some money. They crack jokes at her expense, while all she can do is reply airily, evidently you're a very amusing person. But then she inevitably wins the respect and love by the end of the film. I think it's a safe to say that th this role, this role that uh, Hepburn plays in Stage Door, clearly mirrored her own earlier life. You know, that of a wealthy society girl trying to make it as an actress. Now, the film was nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but it was not, it was not the box office hit that RKO had hoped for. And while Hepburn was praised for her work at early previews of the movie, which would give her top billing over Rogers, in fact, industry people would later blame her for its lack of success, even though the studio would stand by her, at least for now. Catherine Hepburn would always show that she could play comedy if required, which was more often than you might think. And this is especially so in Howard Hawks' Bringing Up Baby from 1938, in which she shows her dazzling comic energy, timing and flair at their very best, with her lines delivered with an absolute seriousness and conviction. The film's screwball twists and outrageous inventions have made it one of the greatest of all Hollywood comedies, especially in the interplay with her co-star, Cary Grant, and in those scenes with a leopard called Baby, which give the film its title. And let's be clear here, <laughs> they did not have CGI in 1938. Hepburn actually acted with a real leopard. Its trainer, whip in hand, was just off camera. 
Now, the plot of Bringing Up Baby, insofar as it matters, which is not very much, has Grant playing a stuffy, dedicated paleontologist on a mission to assemble a brontosaurus skeleton and missing just one bone. While Hepburn is a scatterbrained, plain-speaking, undiplomatically direct young heiress with that leopard, which can only be subdued by singing to it, Naturally, she falls in love with Grant and sets out to sabotage his impending wedding. Bringing a baby has been acclaimed by critics and audiences in recent decades, but the film did poorly at the box office back in 1938. Perhaps it was just too madcap and somehow just too far ahead of its time. Just as Hepburn herself was in many regards. Now, with both Grant and the screwball genre being hugely popular at the time, many critics and writers, including Hepburn's biographer A. Scott Berg, have suggested that the blame somehow lay with her. Well, not her directly or anything to our eye in 2020 that she might have done wrong in the film, which of course is to say that she did absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, she's absolutely flawless in the movie but rather with the then-contemporary audience's growing rejection of Hepburn, the actress. Or was it Hepburn, the on-screen persona? Let me explain. After the release of Bringing Up Baby, the independent theater owners of America included her on a list of actors that they considered to be, and I quote here, box office poison. She also had had a difficult relationship with the press, with whom she could be rude and provocative, it must be said. I mean, she would not give interviews and denied requests for autographs, which earned her the funny moniker Catherine of Arrogance. The public was also said to be baffled by her often boyish behavior and what they took to be strange fashion choices. And at around this time, it is said that she vied for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, with producer David O. Selznick refusing to offer her the part because he believed she had none of the requisite sex appeal. In fact, he supposedly told her, I can't see Rhett Butler chasing you for 12 years, quote-unquote. So with her reputation at a low, the next film RKO offered her was something called Mother Carrie's Chickens, a B-movie with poor prospects. Now, disgusted by this, Hepburn turned it down and instead opted to buy out her contract for $75,000, a huge sum at the time, especially when many actors were afraid to leave the stability of the studio system. But Hepburn's personal wealth meant she could afford to be independent. Now, fortunately for us, she signed on with Columbia Pictures for the film version of Holiday in 1938, pairing her for the third time with Cary Grant, and also again with director George Cukor, with with whom she and Grant had both first made Sylvia Scarlet back in 1935. Now, of course, Hepburn would become renowned for her partnership with Spencer Tracy, but her double act with Cary Grant was easily... It just as polished, perhaps more so, um, at least to my eye. And Holiday, this, this wonderful comedy of well-to-do manners, is another excellent example of that. Like the Philadelphia story, made two years later, and based on the play of the same name by Philip Berry, Holiday presents Hepburn as another stifled society girl. This was her specialty, right, in the 1930s, playing society girls, whether in uh, comedies dramas or comedy dramas, but who here ultimately finds joy with her sister's fiancé, a self-made millionaire played by Grant, just as Grant was in real life, a kind of self-made creation, you might say, but that's another story. Now, in the plot of the film, Holiday, uh, and disillusioned with the you know, the well-bred niceties the, and the social manners of his future in-laws, um, dour Protestant work ethic, Grant has confided to Kate, 
in her role in the film, his desire to leave the materialistic world behind and, you know, take off on a long holiday, hence the title of the film, and discover the meaning of life. She, of course, is secretly amazed by this and even entranced and so develops a spark between them. And, of course, the conclusion of the film leaves us to dream on their future relationship together. Now, sadly, however, while the comedy was positively reviewed at the time and is considered an absolute classic today, I should say this is a comedy with very serious aspects to it, which I, help, which I think helped make it so moving. It did, however, back in 1938, and just like her previous two films, Stage Door and Bringing Up Baby, it failed to draw much of an audience, which was blamed on her. Now, reflecting on that change in fortunes, at, at least with audiences at the time, film scholar Andrew Britton has written of Hepburn, saying that no other star had emerged with greater rapidity. And remember, she had won her first Oscar nomination uh, very early in her career, and you know, amidst much popular acclaim as well. So, um, as Britain has written, no other star had emerged with greater rapidity or with more ecstatic acclaim. But no other star either had become so unpopular so quickly. Following this decline in her career, Hepburn, quite famously now, took action to create her own comeback vehicle. What she did was leave Hollywood to look for a stage project and signed on to star in Philip Berry's new play, The Philadelphia Story. It was tailored to showcase the actress with the character of socialite, that specialty of hers, a socialite called Tracy Lord, who incorporated a mixture of humor, aggression, nervousness, and vulnerability, perhaps much like the real-life Kate herself. Howard Hughes, who was Hepburn's romantic partner at the time, had sensed that the play could be her ticket back to Hollywood stardom and bought her the film rights before it had even debuted on stage. The play itself, with Hepburn in it, remember, was a big hit, critically and financially, running for 417 performances, and then going on a second successful tour. Several of the major film studios approached Hepburn to produce the movie version of Barry's play. She owned the rights. But she chose to sell those rights to MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Hollywood's number one studio at the time, on the condition that she be the star. And as part of the deal, she also received the director of her choice. Guess who? George Cukor. And she picked James Stewart and Cary Grant, to whom she seated top billing as her co-stars. Before filming began, Hepburn had shrewdly noted, I don't want to make a grand entrance in this picture. Moviegoers think I'm too la-di-da or something. A lot of people want to see me fall flat on my face. And so the film begins with Grant knocking the actress flat on her backside. No, I'm not sure how that would play today, but, but her biographer Berg describes how the character was crafted to have audiences, and I quote here, laugh at her enough that they would ultimately sympathize with her, which, help, which Hepburn felt was crucial in recreating her public image. And you know what? It worked! The Philadelphia Story was one of the biggest commercial and critical hits of 1940, with the review in time declaring, Come on back, Katie, 
all is forgiven. <laughs> Variety itself stated, it's Catherine Hepburn's picture. The perfect conception of all flighty but characterful mainline socialite gals all rolled into one. The story without her is almost inconceivable. Quote, unquote. In fact, the story really is her. It is about her. And it is about her return to a kind of acceptance in Hollywood, or at least on the part of audiences watching Hollywood Fair. Hepburn was nominated for her third Academy Award for Best Actress, but lost to former co-star Ginger, Robert, Ginger Rogers. Excuse me. But she did win the New York Film Critics Award for Best Actress, while Stewart, James Stewart, won his only Academy Award for Best Actor for his performance in The Philadelphia Story. Now, this film, it, it, it truly remains a sublimely happy, witty romantic comedy of remarriage. Hepburn's statuesque heiress, Tracy Lord, is acrimoniously divorced from her previous husband, C.K. Dexter Haven, <laughs> unforgettably played by Grant, in a relatively small part in the film, it must be said, although he did have top billing, as I mentioned. Um, while she prepares to remarry another man, Grant's character, clearly still hopelessly in love, with uh, his ex-wife, Hepburn, gets a reporter, James Stewart, and a photographer, played by Ruth Hussey, to gate-crash the ceremony, posing as distant cousins. It's all truly wonderful, with Hepburn facing off superbly well with both Grant and Stewart, and ultimately establishing herself as the film's alpha performer of a kind, in what is perhaps the greatest and most sophisticated of all romantic comedies. Hepburn was also responsible for the development of her next project, Woman of the Year, another battle of the sexes romantic comedy, this time about a political columnist and a sports reporter whose relationship is threatened by what the Times would have considered her character's self-centered independence. So again, Hepburn is playing off of the public perception of her, of her on-screen persona, which our own times today in 2020 would be much more likely to look favorably upon. I mean, I think we would see, we would see that kind of independence, that kind of um, career-oriented gumption as unambiguously a good thing, with nothing untoward in her strong character focusing on her own professional career. But of course, the problem was that she was a woman. And in 1941, that was a problem for many people. The idea for Woman of the Year had been proposed to her by Garson Kanan, the writer. But Hepburn herself also contributed to the script. Now, she presented the finished product to MGM and demanded $250,000. Half for her? Half for the authors, both herself and Garson Kanan. Her terms accepted, Hepburn was also given the director and co-star of her choice. In this case, George Stevens. And Spencer Tracy as her co-lead. On Hepburn and Tracy's first day on set together, she supposedly told Tracy, and I quote here, I'm afraid I'm too tall for you. To which Tracy replied, Don't worry, Miss Hepburn. I'll soon cut you down to my size. <laughs> now, whether true or not, Woman of the Year started an on-screen and off-screen relationship between the two that lasted until Tracy's death in 1967, with them appearing in another eight films together. But I think this one Woman of the Year is the best of Hepburn's pairings with Tracy, though many would argue for 1949's Adam's Rib. In Woman of the Year, Kate plays Tess Harding, a high-flying foreign correspondent on the fictional newspaper The New York Chronicle, who speaks several languages and is always 
whisking around the world. Spencer Tracy plays Sam Craig, a tough-talking sports columnist for the same paper, who's nettled by her dismissive comments about baseball one day. And so he begins a public feud with her in the pages of their paper, which soon sparks a kind of romance between them in which Sam somehow finds himself being second string to Tess's diva celebrity. (laughs) Released in 1942, Woman of the Year was another success. Critics praised the chemistry between the stars. With another biographer, Charles Hyam, noting Hepburn's, quote-unquote, increasing maturity and polish in the role. She also received a fourth Academy Award nomination, and during the course of the making of the movie, signed a big contract with MGM. After Woman of the Year, Hepburn returned to the stage and only worked intermittently during the war years. As a result, her career slowed, but she did make an interesting film directed by Vincent Minnelli in 1946, entitled Undercurrent. A rare film noir for her. Indeed, I can't think of another one. And one in which she plays, much against type, a character who is variously aghast, submissive, romantic, and demure. Now consider that. Submissive. That's much closer to the kind of role that might have been given to Ingrid Bergman or Joan Fontaine at the time. In fact, the film is a marital nightmare of obsession, just like the movies Rebecca and Gaslight. Now, though not as accomplished a film, Undercurrent has Hepburn playing Anne, a naive young woman who's scared of being left on the shelf, has rushed into marriage with the superficially charming Robert Taylor, only to find that Taylor's character is angry, moody, and paranoid about his younger brother, played by Robert Mitchum, who has gone missing. Soon we are meant to expect that Anne is in deadly danger. Now, Undercurrent was not a hit and poorly received at the time by critics, but it has found its admirers in recent years who find a certain fascination with some of its darker-themed aspects. The following year, in 1947, Hepburn portrayed Clara Schumann in Song of Love. This is one of Hepburn's most charming, distinctive, and unworldly performances which perhaps does not get the respect it is due. Although the story is, of course, highly romanticized and even fictionalized to a great extent. Nevertheless, Song of Love imagines the part that music must have played in the tortured relationship between the musicians Clara and Robert Schumann and Johannes Brahms. The latter two played by Paul Henreid and Robert Walker. Song of Love was largely dismissed, both now and then, as too sugary, Um, especially by classical music historians and enthusiasts. But it did poorly at the box office um, with general audiences who may have felt that Hollywood and Kate herself were getting too far above themselves uh, with this theme of classical music. Still, um, Hepburn had been quite committed to the part and uh, had even learned to play the piano so that her concert scenes would look convincing, although her playing was dubbed by Arthur Rubinstein in the film. Another impediment arrived to... um, at least regarding her larger professional career. Uh, And that is that it was beginning to be significantly affected by her public opposition to the growing anti-communist movement in Hollywood and in Washington, D.C. Remember, this was the age of HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, which um, was freely investigating everyone in Hollywood for its uh, supposed, uh, or nearly everyone in Hollywood, for their supposed communist sympathies. And while Kate herself uh, escaped the worst 
of such suspicions, completely unfounded, of course, um, she was still viewed by some in Hollywood as dangerously too progressive. Remember, this is a woman who was used to freely speaking her mind, and um, perhaps consequently she was not offered work for about a year, despite her contract with MGM. And so her next film, her next role, came unexpectedly as she agreed to replace Claudette Colbert only days before shooting began on Frank Capra's uh, political drama, State of the Union, in 1948. Spencer Tracy had long been signed to play the male lead, and so Hepburn was already familiar with the script. Being as close to him as she was, and so she stepped up for the fifth uh, Tracy Hepburn picture, playing Mary Matthews, the estranged wife of Tracy's industrial tycoon in the film, who is running for office on the Republican ticket a campaign secretly bankrolled by his wealthy mistress in the film, played by Angela Lansbury. Hepburn's Mary agrees to return to her husband's side because of his manifest idealism, but uh, wobbles as he appears to get slowly sucked into the cynical political world. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a movie a little bit ahead of its time, I would say, and it's, uh, in, its uh, in that cynicism which uh, critics responded positively to at the time. And it certainly performed well enough at the box office. It's not something I've seen for many years, but I do remember and recall it quite fondly. State of the Union from 1948. Now, perhaps in part to the hostile political climate, of those years, um, the late 40s and early 1950s, Hepburn made only one other film in that time, Adam's Rib, before retreating to the stage again, this time playing Rosalind in Shakespeare's As You Like It. Um, and she didn't return to films for four years. But uh, when she did so, (laughs) she did for one of her most loved performances as Rose, the prim spinster missionary in John Huston's The African Queen. Uh, It's a character with a, you know, I'm sure you'll I'm sure you'll envision it uh, visually as I speak about it, but it It's a character, of course, with a high choke collar and a broad-brimmed hat, (laughs) quite quite famously one of uh, Hepburn's most famous film characters. And uh, I think it says much about her, about her, uh, both her character and herself. When her character in the film, The African Queen, says at one point, I never dreamed that mere physical experience could be so stimulating. (laughs) Having just uh, breathlessly piloted a rickety old boat through some dangerous rapids. I mean, it is a gloriously naive and yet honest admission from this inexperienced but courageous character in the movie. And in retrospect, I think you can see Hepburn transitioning definitively from, you know, the haughty socialite of earlier in her career to the inexperienced spinster role, a kind of sub-genre that would um, come to dominate much of the rest of her career. In any case, for many, the African Queen is that highlight in which she is thrown together with the grumpy and often drunk riverboat captain, Charlie Allnut, played so memorably by Humphrey Bogart, on a mission in 1914 to attack the Germans in World War I East Africa. Then just when their downriver journey looks like becoming a metaphor for sexual initiation, 
it becomes a real sexual initiation. And there is great comedy in Hepburn's first line to Bogart, the morning after their night of lovemaking. Mr. Allnut, dear, she says delicately, what's your first name? <laughs> Released to great popular and critical support at the end of 1951, the African Queen garnered Kate her fifth Oscar nomination as Best Actress and won Bogart his only Oscar. It was the first really successful film that she had made without Spencer Tracy since the Philadelphia story, more than 10 years before, and proved that she could still be a hit without him. After Pat and Mike, another Hepburn Tracy romantic comedy in 1952, and more time spent on the New York and London stages, as well as resting and traveling, Kate returned to the movies in 1955 with one of my favorite of her films, the sweet, sad, romantic drama, Summertime, made for director David Lean. The movie was filmed in Venice, with Hepburn playing another lonely spinster, and librarian, I might add, who has a passionate love affair while vacationing in the city. She described it as a very emotional part and found it fascinating to work with Lean. At her own insistence, Hepburn performed a fall into a canal, but developed a chronic eye infection as a result of that. The role earned her another Academy Award nomination and has been cited by many as among her finest work. I agree. David Lean himself later said it was his personal favorite of the films that he had made and can be seen in retrospect as a kind of cousin, perhaps, to his own brief encounter made almost a decade earlier. He also said that Hepburn was his favorite of all the actresses that he had worked with, of which there were many great actresses, of course. And there are not many movies in Hepburn's career that have the kind of solitude that Lean gives her here in summertime. An almost solo stage to showcase her character's loneliness and sadness, and she evokes those things beautifully. The following year, in 1956, Hepburn received another Academy Award nomination, this time for her work opposite Burt Lancaster in The Rainmaker. Again, she plays a lonely woman empowered by a love affair, and it became apparent that Hepburn had established her second screen persona by this time in playing love-starved spinsters that both critics and audiences might enjoy. Hepburn once said in playing such roles in, her, in these most recent of her films that I was playing me. It wasn't difficult for me to play those women because I'm the maiden aunt. And let's face it, she was brilliant at it as equally brilliant as she was playing those haughty socialites of the 1930s and 40s. And it may be worth recalling that Hepburn had only ever married once in her real life. Early on in her adult life. And had remained married for just a few years, really. Even apologizing to the man that she had married years afterwards for not really feeling devoted to him or making of herself, I guess, in her eyes, a good wife. Nevertheless, in The Rainmaker, she plays a character called Lizzie Curry, a very <laughs> Catherine Hepburn-like name, it must be said, and a very un-Catherine Hepburn-like character to some extent, playing a Kansas farmer's daughter during the drought years of the Depression, who wonders if she will ever get married. But of course, that's the new persona that she has undertaken in the 1950s. Lancaster himself plays um, a character called Bill Starbuck, a handsome crook and con man who drifts from town to town, exploiting the locals' credulity and desperation by claiming to have supernatural rain-making powers. 
And of course, he also has his eye on lovely Kate. Of course, her emotional drought equals the meteorological one, and as Peter Bradshaw has pointed out, Freudians may wonder if the promise of a drenching flood has any further metaphorical possibilities in the film. Tracy and Hepburn reunited on screen in 1957 for the, um, the first time in five years for the, for the office-based comedy entitled Desk Set, which I spoke about last week, in fact. It works as a kind of hybrid of their earlier romantic comedy successes, but this time um, as inflected with Hepburn's new 1950s spinster-type persona. However, still imperious and haughty this time, like some of those beautiful young socialites of old. But unfortunately, Desk Set performed poorly at the box office. I say unfortunately, because I think it holds up quite well today. And um, not just because it's about librarians, (laughs) with Kate playing Bunny Watson, who is, you know, let's face it, that sexiest of all things, a librarian. at a TV company, efficiently retrieving all manner of facts and stats from old-fashioned books. Remember those? Then the, the company brings in a smug computer expert played by Spencer Tracy to streamline the data handling, though absolutely no one was using those phrases in 1957. And how does he do so? Through automation, which is like uh, moving from card catalogs to computers. Naturally, in such an environment, romance blooms between both Tracy and Hepburn. You know, it's funny, but in an era when movie stars regularly made three or four movies a year, Kate Hepburn was not even managing one at this time. (laughs) She had a, a life quite happily outside of the movies by the late 50s. But fortunately, what little she was doing still remains quite memorable today. In fact, it seems like each film that she would make, however many years might come between them, would garner a new Oscar nomination. (laughs) Um, That's how loved and well thought of she was by Hollywood at this time. I think she was just too busy on the stage or traveling, I guess, which she loved to do. So it was two years after Desk Set before she made another film, in this case, suddenly last summer, in 1959. Suddenly Last Summer is a very strange film. As critic Peter Bradshaw has observed, only very rarely did Hepburn allow her mannerisms and persona to be used for villainy or black comedy. But with Suddenly Last Summer, I really think we see (laughs) a much darker side of Catherine Hepburn, one we really don't get in any of her other movies. This is a gripping but thoroughly macabre story based on a Tennessee Williams play in which a wealthy and autocratic woman, Violet Venable, played by Hepburn, attempts to coerce a young doctor, played by Montgomery Cliff, into lobotomizing her niece, played by Elizabeth Taylor, because of Taylor's talk about how Mrs. Venable's highly strung and artistic son Sebastian met his untimely death. I mean, it's, it's really dark stuff. This happened, this event happened suddenly, the previous summer, in some den of iniquity, in a mysterious accident wit- witnessed by Taylor's character in the film um, Hepburn's Niece. Now, Uh, Hepburn's character, Mrs. Venable, is clearly in a state of denial about her son's homosexuality. Um, And her gothic craziness is is really quite startling and uh, really quite uncharacteristic uh, for a Hepburn performance. 
Um, for Hepburn, making the film was a completely miserable experience in which she clashed terribly with its director, the otherwise esteemable Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Nevertheless, the film was a financial hit at the time and um, earned Kate her eighth Oscar nomination playing this uh, creepy Aunt Violet. Tennessee Williams um, was really quite pleased with her performance, writing, and I quote here, Kate is a playwright's dream actress. She makes dialogue sound better than it is by a matchless beauty and clarity of diction, end quote. You know, he even wrote his play The Night of the Iguana with Hepburn in mind, but um, although flattered, I think she felt that once was enough uh, and that it was uh, wrong for her and so declined the part, which went to um, Betty Davis on stage instead. Now, after more years on the stage uh, herself, Hepburn returned to movies um, three years later, this time, with uh, Sidney Lumet's 1962 adaptation of Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey Into Night. It was a low-budget production, and she appeared in the film for a tenth of her established salary. So it was a real labor of love. And she called it the greatest play that this country, meaning the United States, has ever produced. And that the role of Mary Tyrone was indeed the most challenging female role in all of American drama. And you know, she felt her performance as Mary Tyrone in the film was, in fact, the best screen work of her career. Now, we may dispute that. I mean, certainly I can think of any number of roles that I personally love much more. But um, as was standard at this time, uh, she did earn yet another Oscar nomination for it and also received a Best Actress Award at the Cannes Film Festival. And certainly it does remain one of her most praised performances, in which she is very much front and center throughout the film as Mary, the morphine-addicted, insomniac mother of a wretchedly dysfunctional family in Connecticut before the First World War, playing opposite Ralph Richardson, who is a preening, aging stage actor and alcoholic in the film, not to mention her equally troubled sons, um, played by Dean Stockwell and Jason Robarts. But uh, following the completion of Long Day's Journey in Tonight, Hepburn took another, in this case, very long break in her career, her, both in film and on stage in this case, uh, to care for an ailing Sp Spencer Tracy, whom, of course, she was very close to. So she did not work again until 1967's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, her ninth film with Tracy, in which both she and Tracy play a wealthy white couple whose Avowed liberalism is put to the test when their daughter brings home the black man that she intends to marry, Sidney Poitier. Hepburn's real-life niece, Catherine Houghton, plays her daughter in the movie. But to my eyes, and this is perhaps not a popular opinion, <laughs> at least as directed by Stanley Kramer, it's all a bit stagey, I think. Forgive me for saying so. But, of course, Hepburn's quiet sadness at losing her daughter to marriage, you know, quite aside from the interracial ramifications, is 
is, uh, you know, remains quite affecting. Um, and that Spencer Tracy was himself dying by this point, of course, affects, I think, both their performances in the movie, quite movingly so. He had been suffering the effects of heart disease, and uh, Houghton later commented that her aunt was extremely tense during the entire production because of that. You know, in fact, Tracy died only 17 days after filming his last scene in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Nevertheless, the film was a triumph, uh, a triumphant return for for Hepburn, you know, in a basic commercial and critical sense of the term, and was certainly one of the most commercially successful movies uh, of 1967, as well as critically, as I said. She also won her second Best Actress Award at the Oscars, this time at age 60, 34 years after winning her first Oscar. Um, I think Hepburn, Hepburn felt the award was not just for her, but was also being given to honor Tracy, who, of course, was dead by the time of um, the voting and certainly by the time of the ceremony. Hepburn quickly returned to the screen after Tracy's death, choosing to play Eleanor of Aquitaine in The Lion of Winter, a part she called fascinating. Filming took place in Montmajor Abbey in the south of France, uh, which was an experience that she loved, despite being, according to director Anthony Harvey, uh, enormously vulnerable throughout the making of the film, and almost certainly because of the death of Tracy. And, you know, maybe it was a Democrat in her, but um, I think I'd like to observe at this point that Hepburn rarely ever played monarchs or aristocrats. However, of course, aristocratic that she, she might otherwise appear on screen, which was often. But she never really uh, played aristocrats, uh, at least in title. She did, of course, play American aristocrats of a kind, as she did so memorably in the, the Philadelphia story. But um, she certainly never played entitled ones. Um, she did play, actually, come to think of it, she did play one entitled uh, noble uh, when she played the title role of Mary, Queen of Scots, for John Ford in uh, Mary of Scotland in 1936. Um, I don't know if you've seen this film, and I haven't seen it in many years, but I do remember it very much as Ford's kind of misbegotten love letter to Hepburn, whom he was very much enamored with, um, and it, it really comes through in every frame of that film. But uh, nevertheless, returning to uh, The Lion in Winter in 1968, uh, Hepburn had read extensively in preparation for the role in which she starred opposite uh, Peter O'Toole, of course, uh, played Henry II. And um, certainly she was resoundingly authoritative in her role of Eleanor in that um, reimagined 12th century court in northern France. Eleanor is his estranged wife, recently released from prison, and their sparring and political machinations are uproarious, if somewhat over the top. I could peel you like a pear, and God himself would call it justice, yells Hepburn as Eleanor at one point. Naturally, by 1968, it pretty much only required for Hepburn to perform in a movie in order to receive an Oscar nomination. And The Lion in Winter did not disappoint. In fact, she won for it her third Oscar as best actress. For the next few years, and really for the remainder of her career, Hepburn rarely ventured into the movies again. Probably it had much to do with the paucity of good leading parts available for actresses of her advancing years. But she did continue to work 
on the stage, and for the first time on television too, where she did much notable work, including The Glass Menagerie, Love Among the Ruins, and The Corn is Green. But as for theatrical movies, her last really notable part is in On Golden Pond in 1981. She had seen a Broadway production of On Golden Pond and was greatly impressed by its depiction of an elderly married couple coping with the difficulties of an old, of old age. And you know, it's perhaps it, it had reminded her of her time with Spencer Tracy. In any case, Jane Fonda had purchased the screen rights to On Golden Pond for her father, actor Henry Fonda, of course, and Hepburn sought to play opposite him in the role of quirky but vulnerable matriarch Ethel Thayer. For decades, Hepburn's character of Ethel has had to deal with her grumpy and increasingly forgetful old husband, Norman, played by Fonda. The couple spend every summer at their idyllic cottage on the shore of On Golden Pond, hence the title, in New England, and it is here that they must reconnect with their only daughter, played by Jane Fonda. Now, Hepburn's role is mostly to minister with tact and delicacy to her husband's moods, and there is great style to her dignified self-effacement in the part. You know, the movie, the movie production was a great success, a tearjerker certainly, but also one of the highest grossing movies of 1981. And it certainly demonstrated how energetic the 74-year-old Hepburn still was. And her performance, one, you will not be surprised to hear, for a still record, fourth time, Best Actress at the Oscars, though it perhaps was mostly a sentimental win in tribute to her enduring and influential career. Henry Fonda, too, won his only Academy Award for his role in the movie. And you know, think about it, this was the third male screen legend after James Stewart and Humphrey Bogart who won his only Academy Award acting alongside Catherine Hepburn, which I think says much for her. Her inspiration, but also her generosity on screen with her fellow actors. Okay, that's all for now, folks. I better wrap it up. I hope you've enjoyed this survey of the many high points and recommendations that I have regarding Catherine Hepburn's film career. You know, both the movies Summertime and On Golden Pond are available to watch on the library's streaming service, Canopy. But you can also borrow on DVD from the library the following Catherine Hepburn films, Morning Glory, Stage Door, The Philadelphia Story, Little Women, Woman of the Year, Adam's Rib, Bringing Up Baby, Holiday, The African Queen, The Glass Menagerie, The Lion in Winter, as well as Summertime and On Golden Pond. So almost everything that I've spoken about you can borrow from the library. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Please join me next time for more movie and possibly television talk. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at cosaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now.
Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening today. My name is Daryl Levine. We launched this uh, podcast and uh, telephone broadcasting service at the end of March 2020. Of course, we had uh, closed our doors at that point. Uh, People could not come anymore to the library to uh, listen to interesting talks and so on. And this was a way of getting the content to you. One of the things that we did was uh, set up a telephone number that people could call into every day at 2 p.m. so they could listen to this if they either didn't have a computer or maybe they weren't comfortable using a computer. Uh, And of course, we also later distributed this show through the regular podcast channels that people uh, who listen to podcasts are familiar with. And maybe that's how you're listening to us today. So thanks for listening. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you soon.